Welcome to Sound and Vision, conversations with contemporary artists and musicians about the creative process. Here's the host of Sound and Vision, Brian Alfred. Sound and Vision is brought to you by the employee-owned company Golden Artist Colors. Whether it's their vast array of acrylic paints, their Williamsburg oil colors, their core watercolors, or their plethora of mediums, Golden are committed to making the best materials for artists to make their work with. You can find them in art stores or online at goldenpaints.com. Suzanne McClellan is an artist who lives and works in Brooklyn, New York. She's participated in the 1993 and 2014 Whitney Biennials and has had solo shows at the Aldrich Museum of Contemporary Art, curated by Amy Smith-Stewart, the University of Virginia Museum of Art, and the Whitney Museum of American Art, curated by Thelma Golden. Her paintings are held in numerous public collections, including the Museum of Modern Art, the Metropolitan Museum of Art, the Brooklyn Museum, the Yale University Art Gallery, the Albright Knox Gallery, and the Walker Art Center. She currently teaches as a mentor in the Department of Visual Arts at Columbia University, and she's been a faculty member in the MFA program at the School of Visual Arts since 1997 and has been on the Board of Governors at Skowhegan School of Painting and Sculpture since 1999. Recent publications include Suzanne McClellan, 36-24-36, with an essay contribution by Thierry Dedouve, published by Team in 2016 and distributed by DAP, as well as Knock Knock and Net Worth, both published by Space Sisters Press in 2018, with a text contribution for the latter by Amy Smith-Stewart. Suzanne's represented by Team Gallery Inc. and Shane Campbell Gallery, and she just opened the show Selections from Mute up until April 13th at Team Gallery. I stopped by her studio in Brooklyn for a talk about voice, moving while working, the art of language, and much more. Here's our conversation. I'm going to forget. Do you want more tea? I'm good, thanks. Still good. So, what, what do you want to talk about? Um, well, I, it's, maybe we could start off with the fact that it's been probably 20 years. It has been, because it was 1999. It was 99. Yeah. and The summer of 99. Yep. And, uh, yeah, very vivid to me because the, the main landscape was not familiar to me. And it's sort of a mythologized landscape. Or, was that the know, first time you were there? I think it, no, no, I had, I, when I was a kid, I used to visit my uncle who was a writer and had a family house in York Harbor right on the water. He would go up there to write. Yeah. He's a Southern writer and poet. Um, and uh, in fact, my one experience in Maine was that I was running on one of those jetties out into the ocean and fell, had a concussion. They put me in a bedroom at the house and gave me films to watch. And he was part of, I guess, the Academy in some way because he wrote screenplays. Mm-hmm. And I watched um, Clockwork Orange. Oh, my God. Wait, how old were you? Eleven. That's not good. It was really not good. <laughs> and I've the... never... That's my main... That was my main experience, you know, being oh in Maine. Oh, my God. 
That must have traumatized you. I, maybe it did. Maybe I've, that's I the saw problem. that when I was in college and it traumatized yeah. me. I can't imagine being that young and seeing it. Well, also, he had film. You know, he had a projector. So um, he, because it, it really came out right around then. So it was possibly not even in the theaters yeah. yet. So, and I watched it by oh, yeah. myself. <laughs> I think that's the worst part. <laughs> Jeez. It that, was memorable. You, well, as a fellow parent, mm-hmm. are you amazed at some of the crap we used to watch when we were like not even teenagers? Well, you're a lot younger than me. So the things that I watched, maybe you saw more actual violence. My the violence I was exposed to as a young kid was the news. Was the yeah. the my mom would have the Vietnam War. The news was on, and you would see combat. I mean, they weren't showing, you know, the the visceral bodies of but explosions and like yeah, which on the ground mm-hmm. footage. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and then that still right that legendary a lot of still really... there's a lot of violence in that image. But yeah, it's true. It wasn't as violent as stuff is now, you know, like the stuff you see. But for me, it was uh, it was called The Day After. Do you remember that? It was a horror film. No, it was a TV movie that everyone watched. It was like one of those things where everyone watches it. And it was a Cold War movie about kind of like the impending nuclear fallout that's going (laughs) to happen, which, you know, scared the crap out of me. And, you know, in school, we were always doing those drills where you'd have to duck under mm-hmm. the desk, the Cold oh, War drills. Oh, you did that, too. Yeah. I didn't realize it lasted that long. I thought it was just in the 60s. No, no, that that lasted into, I must have been, it was probably uh, late 70s, early 80s. And where were you again? Pittsburgh? Yeah, in Pittsburgh. Maybe they had a particular fear in that part of the world. Because, you know, I lived in Erie, Pennsylvania, yeah. parts of Ohio, Michigan. Maybe that part of the world, the Rust Belt. Yeah, like things... Afraid. Yeah, they dig in deeper there for some reason. (laughs) Which is funny because not that much happens. Like, you know, remember, it was like that post 9-11. I feel like there was a lot of that feeling when I would go back to Pittsburgh there. And and yeah, the Shanksville thing happened where the, you know, but but I always thought if if real, if something real is going to happen, it's going to happen in New York City or something. Yeah, I mean, I think Not in, you know, Erie, Pennsylvania. No, I know. It's, it's or I wasn't even, you know, even um, I was living in rural parts of those, those, you know, close to Erie. I wasn't even in the the city. So really nothing. There is nothing to be afraid of. But people have to create things to be afraid of, I yeah. guess, to get that sensation and maybe a sense of purpose. Right. I don't know. But the other thing about Maine was that I had watched Dark Shadows when I was a kid. Now, that was a very short-run after-school television show. Have you ever seen it? I don't know it? what that is. No. Oh, you have to, to go, go look that name, up. Dark Shadows. Well, and I think Johnny Depp maybe made a, a movie from it, but um, it takes place in a house in Maine, and a lot of great imagery, really spooky. Yeah. And... Um, and kind of silly, but yeah, that I loved that. So I liked being scared. Um, so that was your main experience. Those were my main main experiences before yeah. the yeah. summer of '99, when we met. And yeah. you, I remember being somebody who was in your studio, and I, I always had things to look at when I came. You know, we had to do those studio visits, <laughs> yeah, yeah. and it was really fun to have things to look at. 
Did that not happen in certain people's studios? Not we had a couple a couple artists, no names named, but I would put more in the conceptual realm of things where there wasn't a lot going on. Yeah, I think <laughs> there wasn't a lot going on f- to share. There may have been a lot going on in their heads, but oh, yeah. then the whole studio visit process was more about maybe people testing out their charisma. Right. See, they were more advanced than me in that department. No, that's not advanced. That's just <laughs> political. That's what politicians, you know, people expect that of right. politicians. And there is something. Posturing. I wonder what the ratio was for their adeptness of that behavior to how long they've been out of school. Because I feel like that's a nuance you mm-hmm. gain as you get further away from school. Mm-mm, no, I would argue that it's. It's just, it's in just their something being. that people develop. Sometimes it's a self-protective device, maybe. Oh, yeah, yeah. It's, I mean, I admire it because I don't really know how to manage that. Or I don't aim for for creating right. a charismatic situation. It's more interesting to me to make something that isn't me. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. I think I wasn't self-aware enough to even think about that. It's just like, hey, I'm here. I got to make a lot of work. Mm-hmm. That's like the dumb blue-collar family background, I think. Well, I grew up in blue-collar areas. Yeah. You know, again, the Rust Belt. and Yeah, well, where did you spend most of your youth? Um, well, or I did you move around a born, bunch? Yeah, I moved a lot. But the, the I was born at a Navy hospital in Jacksonville, Florida. And my mm-hmm. mother's Southern. Um, her father had been a activist lawyer in central florida you know since like i don't know 19 he'd been at mit and and came down south when he got polio so that was right around the turn of the century and um and then made a practice there and he was a really left left wing guy so a little bit isolated in that part of the world and then he married my grandmother who was from georgia and Mm -hmm. um so my mother's family is very Southern, but they were very um, politically active on the left. And then on my father's side of the family was from Ohio Farms, Presbyterians. They were they were more into the self-sufficiency model of uh, a more much more conservative thinking people. Yeah. And uh, so I had this ha- Southern family on the left and the Northern family on the right, which... It doesn't oh, make like sense. A civil, genetic civil war. <laughs> no, but uh, made for a lot of really great conversations. Yeah, I can imagine all through my childhood. But we moved after the Navy to I think it was Ohio, outside of Cleveland, and then mm-hmm. and then outside of Erie. No, in Erie. Then he went to Harvard Business School, and that was really fun. That was the first. Ed, real education I was exposed to. I went to a really great kindergarten. <laughs> oh, that, so the, all that was before you were in kindergarten. All that moving. Yeah, and then wow. uh, and then the then uh, back to Erie, and then to Stevensville, Michigan, and then back to Erie, and then I was off, gone by the time I was seventeen. So, um, that New York is the longest I've ever lived anywhere, and it's change it changes so rapidly that it's really easy for it to stay fresh. Yeah. Something. Do you have that? that? It doesn't wear you down. I don't think New York has worn me down. No, I think age wears you down. Yeah. <laughs> That's people. Yeah. 
then yeah. that's where you go back to like these people that know how to manage their charisma or their energy, their various forms of energy. They know how to probably not get worn down by other people. Yeah, that's a real talent, I think. Mm -hmm. I think in New York, maybe what happens is there's so many people from so many different places that you have these little micro annoyances that just are constant. So you become like irritable in general, but it's not against the other necessarily. Mm -hmm. But if you're out in Ohio or Pittsburgh or like somewhere out there, it's easier to just... Oh, this is my, these are my people. And then like the other people. Are Maybe the it's easier that. to be annoyed by yourself when you're out, when you're out in rural areas yeah, rather maybe. than other people. I don't know. It's easy to find fault in things around you. Yeah. If there's a lot of activity, I suppose. Although I don't really feel, I feel like there's still, I still really love New York. I mean, it's. I do too. It's. I mean, I hate endless, it, but I love yeah. it. <laughs> Well, yeah. It's a, and I, I really do love it, but, but yeah, sometimes it, especially in these times when the winter's dragging on, you've got the dirty snow out there, frozen, mm-hmm. <laughs> and but then spring comes and it's like a breath of fresh air mm-hmm. for a minute. Then it gets to that summer stinky air. Mm-hmm. Lots of change. <laughs> but you grew up with seasonal cycles. Oh, yeah. And, so that's important. And right? I grew up in the, like, running around in the woods and, you know, a very rural upbringing, even though there were other houses around. It was sort of the encroaching suburbs from medium-sized Rust Belt yeah. cities, industrial cities that were all going broke in the 60s and 70s. So, by the way, all the anger about... All the jobs leaving in recent years is a little bit of a farce because jobs were leaving in the 60s and 70s. Yeah. The well, height. Autom- automation just accelerated it mm-hmm. probably, you know. Yeah. There were paper mills, steel mills, you know, from Pittsburgh and yeah. all that. Um, but there, were, there was still a lot of beauty in the woods and those lakes even though lake erie was polluted yeah and i think it was even dead at one point um but you know it would freeze and we could go bike skating out and you know running around on the ice it was there was a lot of uh a lot of adventure in in nature and we built a lot of forts is this where creativity sprouted maybe out of you i think it's well i think it's in everybody and then it either gets stifled or you don't find material ways of I, yeah. making stuff happen. I really admire people that can use their voice. Singers, mm-hmm. comedians. Podcasters. Yes, exactly. <laughs> I think you're... That's going to sound so conceited because we were joking I, earlier about no. how I don't like my own voice. I, your voice is is good. It's It's totally comfortable to listen to, so... Well, yeah, voice, so... So you feel to me that's that would that's sort of the um, that I think it's a thing that I wish I had the tools for. I wish I had learned yeah. to use my voice. So that's probably why I'm am interested in it as subject matter oh, and true. have yeah, been for a long time. Just because, yeah, it's it's also just that people speak there's a whole history and also i mean there are so many histories um in the world that have not been written that i feel like that gap between what has been what is said what's exchanged in conversation 
and um, what's funny to people. Those are all things that happen in a room or in a space yeah. or in a landscape that um, kind of feeds the meaning of things. And then things get written and they, they are another, that's another whole parallel history. But I guess if, because I, my mother made watercolors mm -hmm. and she painted, not professionally, but she was also a really curious person. So she'd throw us in the back of those station wagons and drive to Buffalo to see the Albright Knox, oh, nice. where I saw my first, I think that Robert Morris, um, the Robert Morris felt pieces. I think I may have seen a Jackie Windsor cube there um and uh, uh kenneth snelson you know that was the work that really got me excited about art yeah. and then she'd drive us to pittsburgh she'd drive us to cleveland which had an amazing chinese painting collection mm -hmm. and these were family trips wait mm -hmm. do you have brothers and sisters i have two sisters two, two younger sisters. sisters and when we lived in michigan she would drive us to uh, chicago all the time to oh, look yeah. at the museums and well that's cool thanks mom I know she really she made the best of all these places we lived in that really she ran for school board uh in Michigan because the people in our community didn't want any art or music they didn't want to pay for any art and music and in some of the people even said well I didn't get past eighth grade so I don't really see why my kids need to and they certainly don't need school buses so she um they were all men mm -hmm. and she was the first woman to actually run i think she and she won she had her face on all the telephone poles and um and tried to help change that cuz they also were really into football in that part of the world and they would they would pay for the lights and the uniforms and the buses for the football team yeah but the culture was friday night lights rough. yeah yeah that's all they care you know it's like a religion in that part of the world. Yep. Michigan, Don't I know it. Ohio, and Pennsylvania. Yep. Why? I think it's just the one thing you can kind of rally behind. And a lot of people are miserable in their jobs, so it gives them something to... Sports is a great escape in a way. It kind of takes your mind off of, you know, the day-to-day. -day. I guess it does. That's but why, as an artist, I feel like, and I think that's what you were saying before, the beauty is it's almost like sign language in a way. You're, you're speaking through mm -hmm. your hands, which fills, it kind of spackles a void that text and voice can't do in a way floats mm -hmm. in between. But, um, I think like artists have that desire to want to fill that void through that speaking, through making images or whatever they're doing. And I think a lot of people don't have that, that escape or that release. So things like sports, maybe they can get really into that and get into the art of sports or whatever. And that fills it for them. For someone who has both, like myself, like I do like sports and mm -hmm. I do like art, whenever a team that I follow is done, when they get knocked out, part of me is like, oh, thank God, now I could just focus on. <laughs> what is your sport that you like to? Well, I love soccer. I still play. So I follow soccer, which mm -hmm. unfortunately is like a year long. It's, you know, they're playing all the time. Mm -hmm. And I don't like a specific team. I just really like watching the game. But I am from Pittsburgh, so I am not genetically able to not be a Steeler fan. Yeah, it's just there. Yeah, and I watch the Penguins because they're. You are know, they are the Penguins of Pittsburgh? They're the ice hockey team. Okay. Yeah. I grew up around Mario Lemieux, like in the days of like, mm -hmm. you know, really good teams. So it just became 
part of my yeah. Pittsburgh DNA. was a big um, all I all I remember about Pittsburgh really was I went to my first rock concert there, Bruce Springsteen and the Three Bonnie River Stadium Raitt, or something. I think no Allegheny College. Oh wow, um, and, which is in between Pittsburgh and Erie. Yeah. And, um, I just, you know, I resented football, sorry, but I no, did no, I because I was forced to learn all the football plays for my PE class in middle school. Uh-huh. And they but they didn't have any girls sports. Right. So it's just I have a little bit of an inner resistance to it. And also the football players were kind of scary and mean. Yeah. To the other boys. Right. Bully. Not not to me. I mean, I was never bullied. I was lucky. I've had a lot of luck in my life, but yeah. um our football players were nice. It was the second tier of, of like faux jocks that were real jackasses. <laughs> <laughs> you know, the ones who weren't busy actually channeling Working that aggression out, out yeah. on the field or whatever. They yeah. were like the ones who couldn't make it, who yeah. became jerks. But yeah, I know what you mean. I but- like track and tennis because there's this, I mean, you can be part of a team, but you're also watching this, this kind of conversational back and forth i guess that i that i like i mean a lot of times i think and i raised two kids and you you have a kid and there's a thing about the ball i always say to my husband like if he doesn't answer or if lucas my son who's does he's a real minimalist he just barely speaks sometimes when you're in conversation and i'll have to say you know i just threw the ball to you (laughs) are you gonna throw it back or are you gonna let it drift across the room (laughs) (laughs) i mean i really do think that Balls are for passing. Right, yeah. You know, soccer players are not good if they just keep the ball to themselves and don't pass, right? Best teams pass fluidly. It's a a true team effort. Yeah, try teaching that because I coach. Try teaching that to like nine-year-olds, you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. Hey, guys, (laughs) you really got to work that ball. You know, they just initially just want to take the ball and run with it. But Mm -hmm. then you kind of, it's a learning tool, you know? It's like you're going to be stronger if you're in dialogue with other people. Well, how do you do? You have to teach them that the overall strategy is more important than the me, me, meanness, or how does it? Yeah. How, do you have to say that to them? Or yeah, no? as they get older, you do, but you you try to teach them that, you know, when you pass the ball, you create more opportunities in space, which will help you in the long run. Mm-hmm. It's kind of like trying to do everything. Like if I try to clean my room all by myself, or if I have five people and we take each take an area. It's going to be a mm-hmm. lot easier the second one, no matter how good of a cleaner I am. Well, do you ever have? players that don't want to keep the ball like they don't want the oh, yeah. responsibility of the ball so I've they just kids, pass it i've had kids who want to run away from the ball. <laughs> <laughs> yeah you know like they don't want that responsibility mm-hmm. they'll be on the field but they don't want to touch that ball yeah no Luke, you get all types my son lucas was a goal he was usually a goalie he was also oh, a catcher thankless. the goalie I don't position know. He is sort thankless. Of, i think he liked it. he could watch in a way you could watch the game yeah you could see a lot Right. If you're as a goalie. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, because you're not in in battle necessarily. You're on mm-hmm. the outside waiting for it to come to you. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's a time thing, maybe. Goalies are certain types. <laughs> well, that's another podcast. Maybe we don't want right, to make right, that public. Right. I'll ask you about that <laughs> later. No, no, in a good way, I think. They're, they take on, they shoulder a big responsibility. Last line of defense. And like I said, it's often thankless because when... When you make a save, it's like, yeah, that's right, you made the save. But if you let up a goal, everyone's like, oh man, come on. Yeah, I know, I know. But your your analogy earlier to, 
you know, thinking that, how did you put it about those who don't have the dreams, you know what I mean? Or don't have that creative expression. I think that's like a metaphor for life too, is that, you know, I, you feel like everyone has a dream until you, someone squashes it basically. And everyone has that creative possibility, but is it fostered? You know what I mean? Is there that moment? And usually Mm -hmm. everyone I talk, not everyone, but a lot of people that I talk to, they have that one teacher, that one moment that sort of opens the door to make it okay to be an artist or be creative. Well, or gives them the tools. You have to have you, there are things to learn. And, you know, that's, um, learning how to, how to bake or sew or, you know, carve something or make a garden or any, any of these things are, are, we, we, you know, that's where the problems come in in this world is that people don't give, young people the tools they need to do what they need to do and it's all in there i mean maybe i don't know where curiosity what happens to curiosity because i would say that there are various levels of curiosity that you can see even with infants some people are i bet maybe the curiosity has a lot to do with fear if you have fears maybe it's maybe you might develop oh your curiosity might be stunted and the fear might come from bad experiences yeah yeah like fearlessness of like the little kid who goes around sticking his finger in every plug in the the room you know but then if you get shocked at one time Mm -hmm. you're either gonna have like the kid is like well I won't do that, but I'm going to do everything else. Or the ones that are just like, okay, I'm never going to put my finger in anything mm-hmm. again. <laughs> yeah. You know? Yeah, I think everyone's just wired slightly differently, mm-hmm. you know? And your environment, it's this weird dynamic of environment and, you know, experience and outlook and, you know, nature, nurture. Well, people do, humans tend, in my experience, people really do want to read. They want to oh, decode. Yeah. yeah. And and that's a that's something I probably didn't know until I was around infants a lot. Although I had younger sisters, so I could see one sister reads a lot. She was reading, she was reading at the same time I was, and she's two years younger. Yeah. She was just that was her where she went with it. Um, and the other sister is much more. She was into athletics and she played piano. I don't know. She had a more physical. Some people think. Through movement, and some people think in stillness, and um, that I, I guess I, I appreciate how those methods of thinking actually help make whatever work you're making. Yeah, no, you that's know? really interesting. I make, I move a lot when I paint. Yeah, but as a, I started as a photographer. In the dark room, in uh, I mean, I painted in high school a bit, but it wasn't like a an, a, a passion. It wasn't. Yeah. It was. I did. I did. I liked observational painting, so I painted things like my mother painted houses, people's houses for them, and you know they would ask for a ha- you know like a portrait of their house, and she did them, and yeah. it was more of a responsibility to the facts. So I never thought of painting as a necessarily as an inventive place but i did think that photography was a place that had this magic to it because you would frame something out in the world and see it and then there the 
the gap between that framing and, well, and the thing. I mean, the world is so, you know, multidimensional. So then you just reduce it, shoot it down into this little frame, and then and then it would open back up in the dark room. But, but those, I felt like photography required a certain kind of stillness, mm-hmm. which it, is, isn't, uh, that's not necessarily correct. It's just that how I thought about it your personal experience yeah yeah make it in the the dark room it was really about this thing emerging this image emerging in the in the chemicals and um and then it was dead then it was dead (laughs) yeah and then painting kept going somehow somehow it keeps moving do you Um, feel like that kind of thinking through movement generally is healthier than thinking in stasis no not at all i think they're just completely different things yeah. I, I mean i know people that you know meditation r- requires stillness yeah that's true well i mean there are moving there's walking meditation there are all these various kinds of meditation and swimming is a you know can be a meditation because it's involves the breath and but not, you're moving so much in that yeah right? but yeah meditation's interesting well, have I you, don't. Have you done a bunch? Yeah, I have. I have, but I and I practice every day in some way. But um, I don't have a super rigorous practice right now. But yeah, I never. It, it's a pretty mind opening. Depending depending on how you how you do it, I like having a teacher, and I like having a place to go once yeah. a week or one once in a while to meditate with people. To structurally kind of like. Frame. The only meditation I've ever done was in Kyoto in Zen meditation, like with a Zen master, which is a deep end of the pool kind of way to go. That's But when you're sitting there for like, you know, 40 straight minutes, and if you move, you get that crack on the back. They give you that crack. Oh, you get a hit? Yeah, you get I didn't get one. I did well. (laughs) And there was a mosquito in the room, and it kept biting me, which made it really hard to meditate. So you were just like learning? I could feel and that little shit. Like yeah, see, I don't know neck. the Zen process that, that well. I don't know the Japanese method. I don't admit to knowing it that well either, That I've, but I've done it, you know. I can't, I'm not, I, I think this, I don't know if it's true and it's probably dead wrong, but I think when I'm painting and I'm in, you know when you hit the zone? I don't know mm-hmm. what that means, but whenever you're like mm-hmm. working for a while and everything in your life you forget it all and you're Mm -hmm. just lost in that moment that to me is is meditation Mm -hmm. like i feel when i'm done with that i feel really great yeah but that's probably a way different result than what meditation really does for you i just don't have the, the i don't know i'm not programmed to be able to meditate like that and it for it to feed me in a way or something i don't know well you never know i mean it is it, i did it when i was there and it was great yeah, I think for, I think the movement when you're so when you're when you're painting, you, do you move around? Do you move around the yeah. the painting? Yeah, I'm working on one now that's like twelve or ten ten feet twelve feet wide. Wow! So you got to you know I'm moving, and I I purposefully put my paints on one side. And where I'm painting on the other, so I have to walk back and forth because that helps me also get back from the painting constantly. Because mm-hmm. I don't, if I get too close to it, you know, mm-hmm. I get lost. Like you yeah. have to step back, so uh, it forces me to move around. Yeah, I dance when I'm painting. I do stupid. Sh- 
<laughs> so your 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 materials, you keep your paints in um, not on one side of the painting, or no, like on the other the side room. of the studio, on yeah. the, across the room. Yeah, I'll move it away from where the painting is. Mm-hmm. You know, some people pull, which is great. They pull their their palette that's like on a mm-hmm. rolly thing, and they put it right up to their painting, and they mm-hmm. sit and work. I can't do it. No, I don't either. I can't. I got to move around in between, just in between each mm-hmm. area that I'm doing or. You know, I, I've got to move. Mm-hmm. Feels good, you know. Yeah. Sometimes I do work on something small, and obviously I don't move around that much because mm-hmm. it's just smaller. So, but I'll still hang it on the wall and move over to it and back. I won't just sit there and like, you know, work over the piece. Mm-hmm. But yeah, that's I, I have to be moving. Yeah, yeah. So you so then sitting meditation is not as attractive to you but the not the really. movement is in the breathing this is what i like about the the stationary meditation yeah is that then the breath is becomes the movement so it's just a different yeah, kind I've, of movement and I, it's concentration I, internal concentration concentration yeah i i totally relate to that but i feel that way when i'm on an elliptical <laughs> so you're relaxed. Do you know what I mean? Because like yeah. then I get into breathing and the movement's yeah. repetitive. Yeah. And I kind of hit this wall of, but the exercise helps me, I think, because my heart rate gets up and I get the blood's moving so I can almost mm-hmm. like mentally calm down. Well, it makes you happy, doesn't it? Oh, yeah. The happiness. Definitely. I think exercise the is, endorphins. is key because it really, when you leave, maybe, I know a lot of people who hate it. I like doing it, but... For me, it's feeling good afterwards. It's mm-hmm. really great. Like if I don't, like I was sick. I was telling you I was like sick for a week and I couldn't exercise and I just felt terrible. I know it's hard to get better when you're stuck. Ugh. The the walking is also something. I mean, I usually ride a bike a lot around the city, but it's the walking is a much different time frame. Requires yeah. a different time frame. And I, I do think that I... I, I don't want to slow down and walk. I want to just ride a bike. I ride a bike all winter long. And um, you miss a lot moving yeah. that fast. Definitely. You miss a lot around. Well, especially if you take the subway. Yeah. <laughs> you know, it's like the faster you go. like The more you, know, you miss. Like yeah. planes, you probably miss a lot compared yes, to sailing definitely. across the oceans. <laughs> definitely. But yeah, it's just, it. you definitely... When you walk, you see things differently. That's why, like I was saying before, at this time of year, I'm so tired of the cold weather because I like to go out and slowly walk around and look. And -hmm. and I feel like when it's this cold, you're just beelining to wherever you got to go to get warm again. Yeah, it's true. And I miss. But then the nice thing is when it gets warm, you appreciate it. Whereas Mm -hmm. if you were in Southern California, you'd probably never think about it. Well, this studio that we're in here is facing north south so it doesn't have fantastic air movement so if i ever had i mean this is a great place to live i have no complaints i just um really know that when the as soon as it gets warm i open all the windows and the air barely moves those buildings that are facing east west just have an airflow that is a really uh, energizing Oh, it's so nice. Yeah. So the place that that I live in that we bought a while ago, um, the apartment, we had we have these windows that face east 
that are big and mm-hmm. we can open up. And then we add small windows on the side rooms that face north. So in the summer, we could open both and this cross breeze would come through and just, it's like wind. Yeah. And then they built a building next to us that covered those side windows. And it just... It, wind is, I think wind, I love it. wind. I do too. It feels, that's why I love the beach. Mm-hmm. I think I love the beach more than anything else because just going down there and feeling the air like wash, like it's always windy there. Mm-hmm. It feels really good. Well, it's like invigorating. Movement. It's movement. Yeah, definitely. So we'll... Let's it's also the- mysterious. And I think that was something that even when I when I started painting, using language in my paintings... It was it was really to kind of try to tap into the weather condition of conversation or oh, really? the weather the weather condition of thought like that and using for structure instead of using um, like a horizon line or a linear perspective using what um, what happens like energetic forces so mm-hmm. you know that there are there's gravity different forms of gravity we all are controlled by this one big gravitational pull in, in the earth and then there are other poles and um and the wind is a really big uh big one yeah. it shifts and moves and is hard to control but then it can be harnessed and used and um so I've always thought about that as part of what happens in conversation, conversation and speech too. That there's a weather condition that's more psychological and emotional, and it affects how what things mean. That's really interesting. Well, when did that come into your work? Like when you were in college? No, not in college because I was mostly doing photography. Um, you know, it wasn't really okay to paint in in the late seventies. I mean, I did anyway. I took classes. I had Jerome Kamrowski, um, who was a who was a he was a kind of an interesting teacher. But the the better instruction came from Joanne Leonard, who uh, was a feminist and photographer. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> and so, you know, you kind of go towards the teacher really more than the. Um, I mean, if there's a great teacher there, then you want to learn those things. Yeah. So, um, but the. The language in the work came like 10 years after college when I had been um, been in New York for 10 years. And I was it was a combination of having having my daughter, Garrett, mm-hmm. when I was 24, spending time with a lot of with children in playgrounds and watching how they develop from making sound into words into yeah. drawing and writing and all those those transitions and then I ended up in family court which was a, which was a, it was quite um traumatic probably is an overused word these days but it it, I would imagine. it was but yeah. I was it was it was fascinating to see and I have a lot of lawyers in my family that how language can be used as a block yeah. to things um so just the uses of language became interesting to me as a as a subject and at that time in the 80s Barbara Kruger and Jenny Holzer were um and Ed were important and Ed Ruscha yeah. but I didn't I wasn't as aware of Ed Ruscha's work in the 80s in New York City mm-hmm. you know yeah, I mean, he was West Coast he's right. very important to me later but yeah. yeah but those two um were using language in a very kind of um with an advertising 
um, sensibility and form, and you know it was mostly printed. So that's when it started entering into your visual vocabulary. Yeah, and I wanted to use things in a more physical sense. I wanted language to be useful, active, physically. Yeah, in the picture. Yeah, and tactile. Um, you know, I mean, um, Cy Twombly had done that many, many years before. So many people have have made use of it um, as a subject. Um, so it isn't wasn't a new thing, but for me, it was a way of bringing drawing and um, an image together without necessarily controlling the viewer's perception. Yeah. So that's what's kept me away from figurative imagery. Probably the paintings that I'm making right now, this full-fledged alphabet of sorts that I think Jose is at Team Gallery is yeah. showing five of them tomorrow. Mm-hmm. It opens. Um, that These have been the closest thing I've done with paint material that resembles some kind of a maybe a living being or form that doesn't have language in it. Yeah. Um, Slightly anthropomorphic? I would say, yeah, because it's a little bit like looking at how someone's posture becomes them. Mm-hmm. You know, you might recognize somebody's walk or posture before you even know it's them. Yeah. Um, just trying to connect with that. If you do a portrait of me, don't do this posture. <laughs> <laughs> I feel it tomorrow. I live with two drummers. And oh, yeah. The percu- yeah. I mean, musicians hunch. often, it seems, hunch into their work. Right. Unless they're lead singers. Yeah. And they never do, almost never. Yeah, it's funny. It's almost like your body's like you're giving into the instrument, mm-hmm. you know? Although Some I think... Some kind of intimacy. Yeah, definitely. It's symbiotic relationship mm-hmm. uh, i think technically generally you're supposed to have good posture because you know when you play guitar my son's taking those lessons now like he mm-hmm. plays rock and roll and it's just nothing but lean over hunch and like you know that sort of thing but you're supposed to be upright you know and, mm-hmm. and at good posture but well there's music musicians often do the alexander technique i don't i've never done it but there are these you know ways of caring for your body mm-hmm. that musicians are trained to do of course lucas has not ever taken those workshops or classes that they offer at juilliard i wish that he would yeah but he seems uninterested i do think you can you probably have to work at it like dancers yeah. dancers are constantly working with their bodies well it's funny because i i mean take artists as an example most of the time, the body, you're not, people don't consider or not talking about it. It's not a, a big deal. Whereas like a dancer, you'd be like, you better be in good shape. Mm-hmm. But we use our bodies to make our work. I know. You know true. what I mean? So maybe it's not we... just Matthew Barney who needs to be fit. <laughs> I know. I know. <laughs> Scaling a room and, you know, but I do think that's part of it, you know, to be healthy. Well, even people that make things like the, the, the you know, our sculptors, they, they have to develop certain muscles and strength to accomplish yeah. certain missions. And painters might be the, the worst at, at, at doing that. 
Yeah. I don't know. I mean, that's a kind of silly generalization, but... Well, there's there's a lot of sculptors I know just outsource that. They have a strong arm to grab for their wallet when they pay mm-hmm. their fabricators <laughs> to make whatever they're making. <laughs> but yeah, I think generally you're using, you know, body language and movement. But yeah, musicians, they have that too, and it's probably a little more upfront and center, you know. Yeah, ever, have you ever gotten a comment from someone that you know who's in the family or a friend or something who's not an artist and kind of tangentially, you know, not not really doesn't know that much about it? And they're always like, well, do you have an insurance policy on your hands? No, oh, yeah, that, that kind of the, the hand thing. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, I have heard. Like, oh, don't pick that up. I have you heard need that. your hands for that. Yeah. It's such, a, well, it's such a strange. It is weird, but I guess we do. You, you know? don't think about it, but yeah, mm-hmm. I guess I do need it. So. But I can still pick up this gallon mm-hmm. of milk. <laughs> yeah. So, well, let's get to thing biographically. So you were in New York for a while after school. What was that? Where was your studio? Like, how did you get started here in the city? Like, well, I getting the roots planted. And three like, or four people from Michigan. Not we. Everybody in Ann Arbor, Michigan, most people I knew went to L.A., Mm-hmm. And I wanted to go to New York just because I didn't want to have to drive, and I wanted to be able to look at art in galleries and museums. And I and so to me, the the New York also felt at that point in 1980 like a place that was uh, had more people from more parts of the world. Yeah, which isn't necessarily true because I think LA had a lot more but when I went to LA I was just always in a car so I couldn't figure out how I would make a living how I would make a living or how I would see see work so um although but you know the people that did go to LA I think really had a great time because they went to various like really great graduate programs yeah. and so I met my uh well I I knew Kyung Park who started storefront for art and architecture we'd mm-hmm. been at school together and I helped around there a bit and had a job at Ronald Feldman Gallery where I learned a lot. They had so many. Uh, he showed Chris Burden and Eleanor Anton, Ida Applebrook, Joseph Boys. I you know, had so many various jobs there. I learned a lot there. And I uh, met my first husband, Peter Bradley, who's a painter. Mm-hmm. And he came out of the... Um, uh, color field world so I met a lot of um I met Clement Greenberg through him and um a lot of writers and uh it was a very hard time Al Loving um Romare Bearden who was not a color field artist by any right. means but you know these are all people that were living downtown and uh Virginia so were- Yaramillo I was like 20 years younger than all of these people though but you're in the environment it was the environment but it was also a very hard time because people weren't showing that work and there was very little respect for that kind of abstraction so anyway he was making pretty interesting sculpture at the time when we lived in a firehouse on the corner of white and lafayette street Mm -hmm. um which he had gone into and renovated and then uh the owner Thomas Wong um didn't pay his taxes so the city took it away but Mm -hmm. we were able to stay um didn't have any heat. It was huge. It was the we were on the top two floors, like sixty foot ceilings in the middle, and all the old you know firehouse um, poles and you know all the beautiful tile. It was gorgeous materials. It was freezing cold, 
and we had wood burning stoves. It sounds all romantic and it was great like three quarters of the year. And then it was really, really hard. Um, and, uh, a guy named John Albert came and basically bought the building and, uh, kicked us out. Um, he runs downtown TV. And so it was a whole, you know, the eighties for me was living in Chinatown and, um, Peter and I would go listen to music a lot. Mm -hmm. He knew a lot of really great jazz people. Gil Evans, um, Art Blakey. Really? They were all playing, yeah. And he knew them and we were, um, I, I, you know, it was just amazing to hear hear them rehearse and be around that music. So you went to see Art Blakey? Mm Mm-hmm. When did Art well, Blakey pass? Peter knew our. I mean, we went. We were at his house. It was. It was quite um, amazing. That's why I'm saying when you were asking me about my current husband's music, he, yeah. you know, he was in a band in these um, punk type bands in Washington D.C. That I can't. I don't even know. Um, I didn't know that scene at all. Yeah, punk for me was Iggy was Iggy Pop. Yeah, from the late '60s, early '70s to me. Punk in the eighties wasn't didn't feel like punk to me. Right. So I just, you know, and you you know you listen to the music that you listen to. If it, it was also social, like we spent a lot of time with with jazz musicians. And, yeah, I mean, if I'm hanging out with Art Blakey, I'm probably gonna. <laughs> and he was old, but he was so alive. Yeah. And um, James Blood Ulmer, who um, was a good friend of Peter's. So then I had my daughter Garrett, who mm-hmm. you just met, and yeah. she. Um, I actually had to go and stay at, at James Blood's loft because we didn't have heat. You know, it was February and we didn't have heat. So, um, you know, it was a it was a wonderful time, but it was also, I was painting. I, I was painting. I wasn't, there was no dark room for me to use anywhere. So I, I basically started really painting and I, I, I really absorbed a lot from the, the color-filled processes of working on the floor and unstretched. Yeah. And I really, I loved, doing that i went to triangle which was a um like a um kind of a little residency in 1984 i think and that's where i met greenberg who peter was friendly with still and um anthony carroll ran it Mm -hmm. um and um you know this was a bitter time for a lot of people in that world well, they the, were really the not happy moved on. yeah and they did were did you know Cle- i mean did you talk to clement green yeah i had studio visits with him and he he said uh he thought i drew too much in my work and that i mean he was actually <laughs> quite really supportive of a lot of the paintings that i made and these black paintings he you know he was he had clear eyes yeah very sharp um and um you know i feel like the the art world was really hated him he had a lot of you know i mean i didn't really there was a lot we didn't agree on but i wasn't close with him but peter had had a long history with him because peter had been had shown with um andre emmerich gallery in Mm -hmm. the 70s um and we split up and i went to graduate school at sva because they had studios and i wanted to study with judy faff and ursula von readingsvard and um oh she taught there too yeah. Wow. And um, Jackie Windsor. Mm-hmm. Those were the people I wanted to study with. Um, Bill Tucker, I think, is. Yeah, he makes these amazing, um, huge, huge sculptures. So um, I, I tended towards sculptors. 
but I was painting. Lauren Madsen was teaching there. Um, and I was raising Garrett and working a bunch of jobs. I worked for Lucio Pozzi. Um, before that, I had worked at Bark Frameworks in the woodshop. Uh, so piecing it all together in those days, you could do that. I think it's really harder, much, much harder for people now to, to survive. But I moved to a little apartment in Tribeca and then Battery Park and um, was in grad school. And then I worked for John Yao for a brief period of time doing research. Now, did doing all these different things and knowing all these people, I mean, did that kind of help pave the way as far as just getting out your work out there and doing well, all that? Well, none of this, none of these people actually helped me get my work into the world because in those days grad school wasn't really about that it was really a I was you know I would say that having a kid when I was 24 made it a little bit hard to have a hangout social life and I certainly didn't enter the art world um with a crew are you, are you saying having a child impedes on your social life? <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I mean, it didn't. For I wasn't unhappy. You know, I had yeah. I had fantastic friends, and I I was very involved still with the storefront and the people I met at Ronald Feldman, and it was. But you know, this is also these were people that really hated painting too. Yeah, I mean, they really didn't think it made sense. They moved on. Yeah, they had moved on. Everybody was <laughs> so. I'm, I was always kind of in these groups of people that. Um, maybe weren't necessarily holistic teams or crews. And so when I met people, I met a lot of people when I started to show, I sent my slides. I used to take slides and take them around to people. Right, the slide sheet. And I can remember people just (laughs) tossing them into an envelope and sending them back, which was very respectful, I have to say. But I was pretty bold about dropping my slides off. But mostly because I was working these jobs and um my dad was helping me by paying health insurance um but i was i was putting together this very basic life and i wanted to show my work you know when i got out of grad school so um jamie wolf looked at my slides and called and came over and um he put work into a group show that was really good. Um, had some really good people in it, and um, and other people saw it. Barry Schwabsky, um, I think David Humphreys and Barry Schwabsky both um, made some kind of you know connection to the work. And um, Jerry Saltz was working at Arts Magazine then, writing for them. And uh, Barry wrote and. Jerry wrote something Mm -hmm. and I was showing in a lot of different group shows but it was all it all came because because of Jamie Wolf really he gave me an opportunity to show my work that opened the door yeah and then um uh Amy Lipton um Petersburg Press Clarissa Dalrymple I was in a group show there but it closed in the middle these are all people that I've met in such different stages different of time. my life. It's really interesting to hear. Mm-hmm. Like, yeah, they were here doing it like Amy and Clarissa. And, mm-hmm. Well, Clarissa went to London for a while, didn't she? I don't know, but I just know that in the middle of that group show, the gallery closed and they called and said, come get your work. Oh, boy. And, um, <laughs> and to everybody. And um, 
And then the first, I had a, one person show with Stephanie Theodore, who still has a gallery, and she... I don't know. Stephanie. Yeah, she has a really, she had a really interesting gallery then. Um, this was 90 now, 91, 92, yeah. and then... Um, oh, wait, painting's about to knock on the door, <laughs> right? <laughs> and through, after Stephanie, the, the, the Rubels bought work, and they were supportive, and their son, Jason decided to open a gallery uh-huh. but he wanted to open it in florida so in the 90s was this yeah 92 92 and oh probably the most um one of the more interesting moments for me was um an invitation from thelma golden mm-hmm. to do a project at the whitney philip morris there was the whitney museum in those days had those yeah. branches right and it was a big square room, and uh, she she was uh, really putting together great exhibitions there. And I was able to do an installation of painting. It was kind of a movable painting that was mm-hmm. these shifting um, drywall and cardboard sheets of um, of. Uh, I was I was basically. Um, Focusing on breaking down a single word, the word right, R-I-G-H-T. Mm-hmm. So um, she let me work in there, use it as a studio for, I think, six weeks. And we had all these workshops through their education department with kids. That's cool. Teenagers, yeah. So that was, that was uh, and I have some documentation I'll show you if you want to see. Nice. So that was, uh, that was really good. And then I, you know, things just kind of started to grow from other things. Yeah. Yeah, Thelma. Thank God for that woman. I know she was if she so around, smart, like pushing all this great stuff. I mean, you know, there's just some people who are just. Well, she just was a really, it. really great um, curator to work with because she gave me a lot of freedom and she gave me limitations and and she made it happen. Yeah. Um. So that was that was good, and then the '93 Biennial came after that, and that was. That was that was a tough that was a rough um, experience. I really, really loved getting to know the other artists in that exhibition. Yeah, some of them are still friends and um, kind of lifelong friends. Um, but it was a very hostile um, environment around those were that the days exhibition. The, when those you know, a lot of misunderstanding. Were, were like you know, no one ever. I mean, no one. Everyone complains, but back then I feel like it was a real because it had a lot of weight. Mm-hmm. You know, it's like this is the most important quote unquote mm-hmm. art, American art from the past two yeah, years. Yeah, but you know, it was also a time when it was all American, and I think the thing that I I I do wish that I had um, that I had uh, been able to spend time in other parts of the world then, yeah. um, but I I had to make a living here, so. I couldn't figure out how to make that work with a young child and yeah. single. So um, it was a it was a, a pretty. There were a lot of lucky things. I became I met Elizabeth Murray um, while printing at ULAE in mm-hmm. I think it would have been ninety three or four maybe, and um, by then I was still I had relationships with galleries you know in other cities and I was kind of. Uh, feeling pretty um, confident about at least being able to keep making art and not have a lot of jobs. Yeah. Um, 
And Elizabeth and I were really close, and I rented a studio from her on um, 15th Street. That was, um, those were some really good years, because she was a lot of fun to look at art with and to be around, and I saw a lot of her work in the making and learned a lot from that. Yeah, I But I had, I had met, that's when I met Drew, right before that, and he had a recording studio on Murray Street, um, called Harold Dessau, where a lot of people, it was an analog recording studio. Mm-hmm. And um, Remember as those. I said, he was a drummer, <laughs> yeah. And he kept all that equipment and just reopened a studio in Williamsburg now. Oh, really? Yeah, called Electric Garden. And D'Angelo has been there. Wait, I'm sorry. I can't, I got to leave this podcast right now and go camp out. Well, yeah, I know <laughs> you like him. love to meet D'Angelo. Well, I, I haven't met him because I think he's a really private guy and yeah. he works Wait, with. Wait, he's recording now? Yeah. Oh, thank God. And he's, I know people love him. I, I, um, uh, Drew's analog equipment is, they re, he rebuilt the studio with, um, Ben Kane. So they have this really beautiful studio now in Williamsburg. So is he recording a tape? I don't know. Like I true know. analog? I do not know. You have to ask that's him. That's cool. Yeah. But yeah, that's great that he's got it up and running. Yeah. After those years. So those I met, Drew and he had that recording studio and he was touring and doing um and engineering and he um I remember he was working on something with Alan Vega who mm-hmm. was um uh making his own his own project yeah Drew worked with him and I, there were a lot of other people you would probably know but I'm um that was when he and I got together we got married and um a lot of recording studios were closing, and he closed that one and started to learn all the the electronic and digital methods yeah. and Pro equipment. And yeah, Pro that. Tools. Yeah. A lot days. of wires um, and a yeah. lot of computers. Early little... I remember he went and bought a little Mac, one of those little boxy Macs. Oh, that, yeah, that, yeah. Um, The cube thing. Mm-hmm. Yeah. For like... I just think... I think he got it for like $400 or something. And anyway, he's really learned all of this stuff on his own yeah um so that's been our um we were living in battery park and then 9-11 happened and we had to leave and um moved again like a bunch of times different places upstate for a little bit and was that nice getting out for a little um it wasn't nice because it was i mean i loved it upstate but we, I, you know, I had Lucas who was three months old when that happened, and yeah. my daughter Garrett was applying to college, and you know, I was there that day, so it wasn't, it wasn't at all something I wanted to have experienced, and yeah. I just feel really lucky that we're all alive, and right. but we could never go back to that apartment, so um, we had to move, and um, I had had a studio. I rented somebody's studio for a year while they were in Rome, and it turned out that we weren't really legally supposed to be there, Mm -hmm. um, according to the people that lived above this person, this artist. So it was that was rough. It was a lot of rough, you know, having a little, yeah, really unsettled. It's hard to make work when you're unsettled. Well, I made unstretched work. I made work that um, like well hung this this you know out of basketball jerseys i made a lot of work that was unstretched in various places and um so i made i made things happen yeah you got to keep there's i would say well i don't always say it people have told me 
older mentors that, you know, it goes up and down. Everything mm-hmm. goes up and down. You just have to ride yeah. out those crappy times. I know. And just get back to when things settle down, you know. It's yeah. Like, it's like storms. They come through. I know. It's and true. Bat- batten down the hatches. Wait for it. Hopefully it passes by quick. Well, and, and even if it's not a storm, it's a, the, the harder things to identify are these like super dull, quiet times droughts. when there's no action, you it's know, like no. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. It's harder to, to notice those yeah. phases, but certainly they happen. Wow. Definitely. Yeah. Well, it's, oh, it's. I imagine it's a little different these days too because it's harder like you're saying it's harder to see them as much because there is micro stuff going on like look at Clem whenever the you know he stuck his flag in the dirt so mm-hmm. deep that whenever the tide turned you know everyone's just like screw that guy you know like that's over mm-hmm. like there's no that's over anymore really well the thing that I think was hard about that part of history is this notion that he could decide what was good right this this evaluation of good versus bad i mean that because (laughs) there was so much else that was written in there that was quite good and then then you you know you you have all these sort of henchmen around that then try to implement those ideas and it all turns into a big mess it it um yeah i Do you think these days it's hard to even take a real definitive stance on anything? Not us as individuals, but in general, like a definitive stance on things because of the fear that, you know, that that's just going to limit your idea of what is acceptable or what is well, good or interesting? I think it's good that people aren't stuck in, in their positions because positions are, are, I think it's, I actually I like the way it has gone in a, in a certain sense because now we're focused on people's point of view. I'd rather hear a variety of points of view. Right. If than a if people are are capable of debate, that means that they also have to know how to listen, which is also a little bit of a problem right now. Ideally, you would listen. <laughs> I don't know if people <laughs> listen to each other. Right. Um, they interrupt each other and and don't hear. Right. So then, I suppose taking a position is is a comforting thing you know then you can get your team members around you you get your crew you get your your you know position it's like war what they where do you take positions uh in warfare in politics Mm -hmm. um but i just think artists uh artists can be really strong and clear and have a point of view without it being a a position, so yeah. I don't miss. I mean, it was fun to read um, art criticism and the dialogue, the public dialogue that was going on in the late seventies when I was in college. It all seemed really exciting. Yeah, well, especially in light of the fact that it's gone. <laughs> yeah, that's gone. It really is gone. Art criticism, don't you think? Well, no, I don't think art criticism is gone. I think it's just that we we get we get really. We have to try to parse through all the promotional writing. There's so much writing that is promotional, yeah, and that has been hired, like PR people, sponsored are, content. It's yeah, I. But even when you don't know it, galleries hire PR people, and they yeah, and then all of a sudden you see an article in the New York Times, right? No, it's, um, yeah, it's kind of pay to play in a way. 
That's yeah. a problem. Takes but, all the adventure out of things. It does. It's. I think it's damned if you do, damned if you don't sort of thing. It's like, can, can't there ever be a happy medium? Because it used to just be, you know, uh, it seemed as though in the past criticism was just taking a lot of people that are like really critical all the time of things. And and then you, you want this balance. And now it just seems like celebratory in a very surface kind of promotive way. You know? Well, th- there are there are ways that writing. I mean, I love reading um about art that yeah. is i don't care as much about biography of the artist as much as how somebody describes what they're seeing in relationship to history right and uh, and you know that's that's endlessly interesting to me um and i do think we still have that it's just that it's harder to dig to get past a lot of the the louder writing, which is is very focused on, um, I don't know what it's. Fo- I actually don't know what it's focused on right now. I don't think there is a focus, so yeah, that's yeah, that's hard. Yeah. But that, but well, some it's of attention the attention span too, because attention span so short now. Generally, yeah, not individuals, but just as a society or like what we take in, because there's so much mm-hmm. that it's hard to really have that gripping. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like that. I mean that's why I like sitting and talking to people for more than five minutes because <laughs> you can. I know. I think something this can is, happen. You, you know. I mean, I've looked through your your podcasts. Are really I've learned a lot from listening to these. Some of these, like some of them, are artists I know. Some are, a lot are not. Yeah, are yeah. not people I know. Um, but how people are, um, how they how they develop their work, um, is a uh, is is always fascinating to me i mean it's the only it is the reason that i teach yeah because i i do like to see how people are thinking and how they're making yeah the process of the Mm -hmm. entire thing i agree and it's normally you don't you're not privy to to getting that really Mm -hmm. and even if you read an interview in like a magazine it doesn't how deep can it go Mm -hmm. the questions are usually your garden variety you know and like sometimes i get messages from people like oh it's so kind of you to share people's stories it's like Trust me, I'm getting way more out of this than anyone else. <laughs> I mean, I'm not that selfish, but <laughs> it's well. It's, now I'd like to see your. I mean, I've I've seen. Oh, you! I did see some of your exhibitions, um, but it's been a while, so we have to. We have to. I have to. Yeah, come, come over. over. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, it's funny because you know I talk to younger people now too, or like they don't know me or my work really, mm-hmm. and uh, not because I've I've I like to say that I've pleasantly flown under the radar for 20 years where i've you know been here working and showing or whatever but there's a lot of people who have no idea mm-hmm. what, well things have know. now now everybody is exposed to so much that it's i think we're all under the radar yeah right and i mean I'm you can't completely can you? yeah there's yeah. just it and the people you have to uh, have a dialogue with the people that you want to have a dialogue with so right it's um and in that sense i think I think art criticism is in a, in an interesting place because there are uh, people from various worlds that could debate with each other right. if they chose to. And it used to be with people with their fierce positions that I kind of came up, grew up with. Um, you know, Donald Judd could be very dismissive. Yeah. That's not interesting. That's no, strong. I totally agree. It's tr- it's strong. Yeah. But it's um, 
it looks like criticism. It looks right, you know, like that feels like just narrow. Yeah, I but was, I mean, his writing is great. There's a lot of really amazing writing. I love Solowitz's writings. I mean, these are generalizations, but yeah, um, I like Anne Truitt. And yeah, like and um, Lucy Lepard was you know really important to me, and when I was in college, and that was more than that wasn't criticism so much. I mean, it could be, but it was history. Yeah, I think that I was kind of joking when I said there's no more art criticism. I mean, art criticism happens anytime someone looks at a piece and talks about it. But I meant more in that kind of, you mm-hmm. know, the quotable like art criticism, like yeah. the reviews or whatever, you know. You know, like, I, I remember when I first had a show and got a New York Times review, it was like this thing, you know, where it was mm-hmm. like, whoa, you know, it was like the thing everyone cared about. And now it's, you know. I got a sponsored content article written about <laughs> written about me that wasn't that expensive to produce, you know. It, it it's true that it's it was a rewarding it ha, it can be a really I think it's a real gift when you have when somebody actually writes about the work after really looking at it. Yeah. And they bring something to it. So I feel like I've been very lucky as you have. You know, you've had responses. So it it's and especially if it's from people that that are are able to walk in and look at the work without a lot of explanation yeah. from the artist themselves. I think that that's, feels great. Well, yeah. hey, like for my last show, my catalog here in the city, I asked three people to do essays on it, you know, and for different reasons. And they were great. Like mm-hmm. they mean more to me than any. So I want to you know, see those one paragraph. I'll, I should have brought you. Yeah, you should have. Yeah, but they're fellow artists, you know, mm-hmm. and, and it's like they mean more to me than like, you know, a snippet blurb and you know whatever yeah. New York publication or whatever, because it's it's like a meaningful look. Mm-hmm. Even if I said, hey, do you mind taking a look at this and giving your reaction? Mm-hmm. But it it it's great, you know what I mean? And I think part of that is to the gift of collaboration. You know, it's like when you get together with someone and work on something whether it's a conversation or you know writing or thinking or talking about work or whatever it is Mm -hmm. just that that's where kind of like the growth or the the plus i think of artwork can happen it's not just hanging work and people saying like hey these are really great and you sold you know five out of ten or whatever it is do you know what i mean like that's Mm -hmm. all great but it's those little moments that people are sharing and you know, oh, did you see their show? And then, oh, yeah, that was really great. You know, that kind mm-hmm. of stuff, I think, maybe is where the excitement lives. You know what I mean? It does. And you're figuring it out as you're making it. Yeah. And so then there's a certain kind of life in the work that hopefully people receive and figure it out as they're reading it. Yeah. And hopefully it keeps going, you know, with that work, right? Ideally. Yeah. So you, well, you, speaking of work, you have stuff opening tomorrow. Which space? Mm-hmm. Which space with Jose? So he, uh, his gallery is at eighty three grand. Eighty three grand, yeah. yeah. He doesn't have the Worcester Street space. That's right. Yeah. Um, anymore, which is where I did the last project with him, and this, um, this is, um, actually, this is the gallery B, so it's the smaller space, right. And um, I really um, love Paul's, uh, Paul Sapuya, his Mm -hmm. photographs. So he's in the front. Um, And uh, I think it's a good combination. He just, uh, I had uh, 
hadn't planned on doing an exhibition for a while because I'm in the middle of this um, kind of ongoing alphabet. And mm-hmm. but Jose came over and he he thought it would be a good time to to a good match and a good time to do this. So we really just decided a few weeks ago. Yeah, and um, that's not far from where you used to live. His right, gallery, right. The old stomping grounds. It is. La, la, well, White and Lafayette. Also, the storefront for art and architecture was yeah. nearby there, and Ronald Feldman Gallery. Um, Lucio Pazzi's studio was on, um, I think it was on Green Street I worked. Yeah, that's the old, you know. Yeah, not much There's a changed, few remnants right? <laughs> left of that time. Yeah. Bark couple, frameworks, yeah. A couple spots left. Mm-hmm. Jose's a really good, I, I, when I met him, I had a great experience talking to him. Yeah, he's brilliant. You yeah. should. Are you going to come by tomorrow? I'm going to try. Yeah. Okay. I have some some soccer practice stuff that I have oh. to take care of. Well, if you don't, just you can come. It might be. I think it. it's going to be crowded because Paul is very. Um, he's very well loved and popular, yeah. and the work is really good. And I've been seeing we images. Seen, yeah. It's cool. Yeah. Yeah, I'm sure it's going to be wild. <laughs> It's it's the energy right now is nice too, you know, because there's mm-hmm. a lot of stuff going on. It's kind of fun. When well, like- and Jose has a way of he <clears throat> is a brilliant curator. Yeah, he can hang work in a way that um, I just let him do it, you know. And I I don't think I've ever felt he he's never hung my work in a way that I didn't I didn't appreciate, and I and I. I do know the difference. It's really sometimes there are people who are really great at handling art mm-hmm. with, um, you know, collectors and curators in the outer world, um, and they're not as into the curatorial part of things. But, um, you know, he's really, I know it's going to be well handled. It's like a friend who's so good at driving that you can actually fall asleep in the passenger <laughs> exactly. side. Exactly. Well said. <laughs> Well said. Some people may take the wrong exit. Some people might fall asleep at the wheel, whatever. But mm-hmm. you feel like he can drive it all the way home. Yeah, that's that's cool. So how many? It's five new pieces. Mm-hmm. And are they roughly the scale of what's here? the ones down? The bigger one? No, those paintings that are downstairs are all in the works. And mm-hmm. then some of the other, you know, the the they're called mute. So they're all um, mute A, mute B, mute yeah. C. And I've got about seven of them downstairs that you saw on above that fireplace, and lean against the wall. But those yeah. bigger paintings are the are joke. They're joke paintings that I'm that I've been making. Also, another kind of ongoing, yeah, collection of jokes. Have you ever collaborated with musicians on anything? Um, well, Drew and I have made a few. Things which I have one thing I showed at the Orlando Museum of Art, mm-hmm. who Scott curated. Um, sh- it and it it was a sound work we did together. Nice, yeah, that must be fun. But I'm hoping I would like to do more with him. Um, you know, in the coming years. Yeah, that's cool. Okay, well, so other than team opening tomorrow, so by the time this releases, it'll be up. It's up for mm-hmm. a month. I'm guessing. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. And then where else can people find your work or information about you? Um, well, let's see. The Aldridge Museum. Amy Smith-Stewart did an exhibition last year, and mm-hmm. there's a good catalog. Um, there are um, – and Team Gallery um, published a book 
um, that Thierry Duduve wrote the essay for nice. and um, that I, I really am proud of and um, was designed by omnivores. Mm-hmm. Um, and that you can get through DAP. Um, and then I have another book coming out that is probably sometime this month with Gretchen Krauss at Space Sisters Press. Mm-hmm. She's based in Beacon. And um, I've done a bunch of posters with her. And um, and this will be a series of 99 um, ink, ink uh, paintings um, on paper that are names of uh, musicians. Oh, that's cool. From my memory banks. Yeah. And, is um, R. Blakey one of them? No, they're what? all. They all happen to be women. <laughs> oh, nice. Identified as female. Um, so it's kind of a little bit of a of a loose history of the names of people who use their voices. Mm-hmm. Billie Holiday. She's not in there now. This oh, is man, all for two. These are all people that I would have heard. At least um, some part of and have some memory of from the mostly the late 70s, 80s. So people during my lifetime. Right, right. So in a weird way, it's a, it's kind of like creating a bit of a self-portrait. Connected to your history. Just through memory. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. What, what you remember. Names. It's just names, right. too. There are no images. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. That's a cool project. So comedians and, and musicians. Nice. And it's just their names. That's great. All right, so you're going to come over to my studio? I am. And it's not going to take I'm gonna 20 years. going to make a date. It's not going to take 20 no, years. No, not another 20 years. Let's make a date. <laughs> Sorry about that. Okay. Before I go to Japan. That sounds good. So we'll do it in May. Perfect. April or May? April or May works. Okay. Second half of April. Cool. Okay. Thanks for having me Thank over. you. Cool. This was a pleasure. Thank you. Hey, it's me. Can you do me a favor? Can you go to iTunes and subscribe to the podcast and also give it a rating and also give it a review and maybe do that on Google Play and Stitcher and other platforms as well? It really helps out the podcast to support what I'm doing and to get more people to check it out, find it, art fans to see it online, to get to know where it is would be great thanks a lot for listening uh, check out at sound and vision podcast on instagram for some extra pictures or you could go to sound and for some more images there too thanks for all your support